It is time to answer some big questions about our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light, lasers, optics, and fascinating tech news. Each episode, you'll hear groundbreaking stories from around the world about the fibers of science, from its triumphant past to its audacious future. Brought to you by Photonics Media. Listening to All Things Photonics, I'm your host, Emmett Warren. In today's episode, we're exploring the story of human brain evolution from the cells of early animals to cuttlefish wearing 3D glasses. We'll also be hearing from Photonic Spectra senior editor Sue Petrie as she reads this month's editorial, and featuring our interview with SPIE gold medal winner Ursula Keller, conducted live at the Photonics West show floor. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. Researchers from the Institute of Physics at the University of Freiburg observed real-time ultra-fast quantum interferences of electrons in the atomic shells of rare gas atoms. By exciting rare gas atoms with specially prepared laser pulses, and then tracking the atom's response with a new measurement technique, the scientists were able to observe oscillations occurring within a period of about 150 attoseconds. Scientists at Rice University, the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and Oak Ridge National Laboratory used a small visible beam mounted to a scanning electron microscope to form laser-induced graphene, a multifunctional graphene foam that is typically direct-written with an infrared laser into a carbon-based precursor material. The researchers were able to directly observe laser-induced graphene formation while the process occurred in the scanning electron microscope chamber. The research could allow for electronic circuits to be written into flexible substrates such as clothing. And finally, researchers from Nanyang Technological University and the University of Leeds have created what they believe to be the first electrically driven topological laser. The use of topologically protected photonic modes enables this laser to efficiently bypass manufacturing defects as well as corners. The laser developed by the researchers could lead to more efficient manufacturing using existing semiconductor technologies. We're here with Dr. Ursula Keller. She is a physics professor at ETH Zurich in Switzerland and also the 2020 SPIE gold medal winner. Dr. Keller, thank you for joining us today. Yes. So I want to start out asking um, about your work with CESAM. 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 <laughs> and uh, just curious if you can take us back to the 90s and your inspiration for inventing this what was inspiring you in that moment, and what were you thinking for the future? Yeah. So, I mean, I was at Bell Labs, and I was actually directly hired as a member of technical staff, which meant that I had to build up my own, I was allowed to build up my own lab, my own research, and the guideline was do something different than anybody else, but it better be good, right? And while I was building up my lab, there was actually a project going on in Wayne Knox's lab uh, with a postdoc 
where the postdoc was supposed to do an APM, a couple cavity mode locked laser using a semiconductor device. And it didn't work. And then he asked me if I want to try it. And I actually did it then differently with a different device, uh, borrowing it from a neighbor from my office, and it worked. And I think the reason why I got it to work was uh, because of my uh, knowledge in microwave spectrum analyzer, because while I was building up my lab, the first instrument that I bought was a microwave spectrum analyzer on wheels. And, and Bell Labs at that time had all the you know, state-of-the-art lasers and nobody ever measured the noise on all these lasers. And I opened the doors to all the labs by going in there and doing noise measurements and then writing a paper. And then everybody felt kind of, wow, she wrote a paper and I haven't really done anything. And, and they felt like they owed me something. <laughs> so it was a very nice way of um, opening up the doors and also... Because of the microwave spectrum analyzer, I could actually get something going, a weak signal. I could see a weak signal that other people with other instruments couldn't see. And the normal laser physics people at that time, they didn't know this microwave technology. And that was actually the key know-how that I had that allowed me to make something work. And then it worked in a more complicated way, which I actually didn't like so much. But after I understood how it worked, I could come up with the first season device. And then once you have it, you know, you have a device where you can change so many parameters. And then I started to vary parameters and then with time learned the physics and so on. So um, and then I also first I did it on the Thai sapphire laser and then afterwards on um, a dye pump solid state laser. And the mode locking was so much more stable than anything I've seen before. Then I realized this is good. And then I actually sent, because my husband at that time, my husband and I were um, on a bi-coastal marriage. And uh, he was in a startup company on dial-pumped ultrafast laser. And I actually called him up and said, hey, you need to try this one. I'll send you something. And, you know, he... I initially, you know, he was patiently kind of doing it, you know, and as my husband, you know, he tried it out. Mm -hmm. And then I explained to him what he needs to do. So he did it, right? And then I got a phone call and said, how does this work? Because he was so impressed how stable it worked. So actually, I knew exactly that this is big. Did you think it was going to be as big as it is, though? I mean, you know, there was, of course, this issue that people said, oh, the first people who said something, they said, oh, you know, there is going to be some damage. That was the first comment. Then other people were saying, oh, you know, maybe there is some other mode locking mechanism and this is not really the, the thing. And so I, I then, we had to prove over time that this is not the case. I mean, my husband then ultimately commercialized, you know. We were kind of thinking, this is cool technology, must be good for something. And we came up with a whole bunch of things that could be good. And actually, many of them actually really are now big markets. So it actually wasn't, you know, ultrafast has been used in, in research, but what was holding ultrafast lasers back was that there was not a simple, reliable, ultrafast laser out there that could be used in the real world, in the industrial world. The best process of research is to look at places where there isn't the type of innovation yet, right? Yeah. But, you know, I have to say innovation 
you, can, you cannot just sit down and say, now I'm innovating. I mean, it's, it's a, actually a very interesting process. At the end, you have to do something with, uh, with, with some plants that you think are good. And the best thing, in my opinion, that can happen is that something happens which you did not expect. And normally, this unexpected result makes you go in a different path. And you're always looking, is that, that's kind of like your methodology, looking for the unexpected? Yeah, I, I consider myself an explorer. Mm. So I, I definitely am an experimental, um, I really, I like to be in, in experimental physics. I like to go and explore the frontier of performance and hope I stumble onto something that I didn't expect beforehand. So this is actually why we do experiments, because, you know, if we only do experiments following theoretical predictions, then we limit ourselves. Then why do we do the experiments? The experiments need to open up space, right? And this is kind of the way I like to do uh, experiments, and that's how I like to explore. Yeah. Just I'm to an, find those kind of mysteries, and you just like to think about it. Yeah, I'm, I consider myself really an explorer. Mm -hmm. Uh, in, in, in research and I inspire uh, and I try to inspire my students and postdocs to look for those things that are maybe not really behaving the way they thought it should behave. Is that how the add a second clock came about? Oh yeah, that's how it happened. I mean, it basically was an experiment, a much more complicated experiment that we planned to do. And we did some initial calibration measurement. And the calibration measurement came out differently than we thought. And by trying to understand what is going on, what do we see? Actually, out of that came then the idea, hey, this is like a clock. How does it work? So it's actually very simple. You use as a time reference the circular polarized light, which is going around, you know, so it's like a stopwatch. So that the hand of the clock is now rotating much faster. So at 800 nanometer, the hand of the clock is rotating in 2.7 femtoseconds uh, through the whole circle. So the faster the hand of the clock rotates, as we know, the more accurate is your time. And I use this one and through this whole few cycle pulse generation and the stabilization of the electric field underneath the pulse envelope translated into the circular polarization, which means that you then fix the maximum electric field in space always to 12 o'clock. That control allowed me then to use it to measure the tunneling time. Actually, the funny thing is, that allowed me to, to come up with the idea. Later on, we realized we don't even need that. But without having gone through this process, we probably never would have come up with this idea. And uh, once you, you start thinking along those lines, sometimes the initial trigger that made that possible maybe is not even necessary anymore. And so it's a very interesting process, and I, I totally love these kind of things. This, uh, this is where I, I get really excited about. It's the most accurate clock in the world, right? Yes, exactly. And it has no limits because, you know, we can have shorter and shorter wavelengths. The electric field vector is turning faster and faster. So as long as you have control and you, you look for a good experiment, in principle, there is no limit. 
how accurately you can measure time. Yeah, where does the ultra-fast laser come into there? Uh, yeah, so this is basically uh, sets then the time zero of a very fast process. So by having a very short pulse, only, you know, the electric field vector goes up uh, and becomes stronger and stronger, and only at the maximum you have the highest probability that that's the time zero, you have the highest probability to start the tunneling process, which is very highly sensitive on the field strengths. So you have a clear time zero, and then you measure in what direction the electron is flying after the pulse is done, and that gives you then, out of an angle measurement, you then get a time. Could you, could you apply this somehow to quantum mechanics? What are you looking at that? So this is basically the tunneling time. And the tunneling time is a fundamental quantum mechanical process for which we still have a heated discussion how long this takes. But we also used it, for example, for double ionization of atoms, asking how long does it take between the first electron and the second electron coming out. We also used it, for example, to ask the question in multiphoton ionization, how much momentum of the incoming photon, the linear momentum, they come do -do 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 into the atom, you know, how much of this linear Momentum is actually transferred to the electron and how much to the atom. That was also an unresolved question and we resolved that one. And what was the answer? Oh, it's actually time dependent and it is actually not at all like in a radiation pressure picture. You actually transfer the least amount of linear momentum to the photoelectron at the peak of the pulse, which is counterintuitive. Right. And Why is that? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, actually a theory explains it also. Why, from a feeling point of view, if you come with this radiation pressure feeling, it is counterintuitive. But the radiation pressure picture is wrong because radiation picture means it's an averaging over many cycle. And this is time resolved within less than a cycle. So your feeling is simply wrong. You know, our feelings and our understanding is limited to our sen sensors, right? And our sensors, as we know, are very limited. We are in the classical world. We only see in the visible. We only hear in certain frequencies. So our feeling is based on our sensors, and that's very limited. And that is actually something that you know when you go into the science, uh, sciences that your feeling is not always correct, right? And this is part of the science because you expand your sensors beyond your own sensors. And we teach normally when we teach people in quantum mechanics, we teach them a totally new world. And then by teaching them the new world, they develop an educated feeling. But this is a learning process. Even for you, I mean, you can keep oh, having to keep going. It's a learning process for all of us. You know, when we enter a new field, we do the experiments. And then we try to understand the experiments with theory. Then we try to develop kind of an understanding. That's why I think these semi-classical models that we sometimes develop, even so they might not be perfect, they are actually very important for innovation because then we start a creative process out of these models and start becoming creative and come up with new ideas, what we could do, which might not always be correct because these semi-classical models might not always be right, right? And that's why we then do the experiment.
Right. And how does that translate when you're you going to keep passing this knowledge on, but you keep learning? Yeah. Does that pre uh, present a challenge for you to continue that flow? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, of course, when, when, you, when I look back, you know, I was a PhD student. I did all the experiment. Then I was at Bell Labs alone in the lab for four years. I did all the experiment. Every screw that was screwed in was screwed in by me. I knew all the details. Then you move in as a professor. And then, of course, you multiply. So the nice thing is then you can have all these ideas going along in parallel, right? Because you can multiply, but you're not anymore there in all everything details. And yes, some of my students then know uh, the details better than me, but that's okay, right? But I'm based on, because I've gone through this process, I can lead this innovation process and can guide these people through this process and can multiply. Mm. And so um, I think, you know, if you have a leader who never gone through that, I think you will not be the multiplier that you should be for the people and you probably will even suffocate some of your most creative people mm. by keeping them on track on certain roadmaps, which you narrowly defined, you know, I always leave space for new ideas. I always tell people, you know, if you have a better idea than what is standing in the pro proposal, we have a proposal. All of them have a copy of the proposal. In principle, they know what we are up to. But then I say, you know, if you have a better idea, always come and talk. I'm curious now, you mentioned leadership, and I'm curious where that, you might want to apply that, and you also are working with the ETH Women's Professors Forum. Right. Does it incorporate somehow? Yeah, I mean, you know, as I moved on uh, in my career, I then also took on a directorship of a national um, center. So it also allowed me to get more money for getting into this up to second science, which is very expensive. And one of my charter from, as a director of the, uh, of this network was to do something to promote women. And I, you know, I was the first female professor, woman professor in the physics department. And I felt sometimes pretty isolated. And I felt like I wanted to create a women professor forum so that the different women from the different departments can connect. We can give each other advice and we can give advice to the younger women who start off with. And so it's, um, it, I think it's an important network. I mean, women shouldn't just network on their own, but if the number of women in the different department is below 30%, we need additional measures to make sure that these women who are such a minority are not marginalized and that they can excel and be successful and don't waste too much time on unnecessary politics. This banner of you being first woman professor at ETH Zurich, it's been a, a meaningful thing for you, right? I mean, you were a student there, you know, you said that once, like, yeah. it felt like a joke that you were right, right. first professor, first female professor to be hired. In the physics department, physics so department. yeah, so I'm, so yeah, I mean, it is definitely, it was harder than I thought, but on the other side, I have to say, um, because I was at Stanford uh, with a professor who was also uh, not a nurturing professor, it was sometimes challenging, you know, I had my trouble during my PhD, but all this trouble was good because it let me grow up. And then when I moved to Bell Labs, uh, you know, I built up my own lab. I 
nobody told me what to do. I mean, in the contrary, you know, uh, all the doors were closed because people were thinking I'm stealing their ideas because I was looking for new ideas, right? So it was not a nurturing environment, but having gone through this, you know, first the PhD, then this four years, Bell Labs, allowed me to go into this physics department where they pretty much ignored me. I wasn't welcome. I mean, I clearly was um, a quota woman, but I could, I got enough resources and I got tenure because I negotiated. I wouldn't go back there uh, on tenure track because that I didn't trust the system. So I negotiated that I got tenured. I had a permanent position at Bell Labs and I said, I have a permanent position at Bell Labs. I only come if you give me a, a tenured position. Was that hard to negotiate from your position? Yeah. Coming in, they're like, well, she's like, we don't hire women that much. Like, you're. I mean, they, I mean, there was definitely pressure, political pressure at that time to increase the number of women at ETH. And so, so there was a president who actually really thought, I want to increase it. And he was actually really hiring a number of women in different departments. Very often, many of us, you know, we were just dumped into these departments and nobody asked anymore how we are doing with much less resources than any of my colleagues had. At that point, there was no transparency. I didn't even know. But, you know, I had enough resources to do something, more than I had at Bell Labs. And, and so, based on the training I had at Bell Labs, I could do it because I didn't need any help. Ellie, you have overcome that sort of political pressure and uh, breaking through the industry. But you've also talked about how you struggled like, with dyslexia early on. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so incorporating that with the gender bias, I mean, how would you give advice to people? They're, trying to, they're feeling the same kind of pressure. Yeah, I mean, I definitely always tell people you don't need to be good in everything, right? I mean, obviously, if I would have studied German, you know, that would have been not a good decision, right? Because I always was not very good in languages and so on, and I overcame that limitations, but I was very good in math. So I think it's important that I always keep telling to everybody, try to find out where you're good at and what you like and build up on this and get help on everything else so it doesn't stop you from going uh, and being successful. Would that be the same advice you'd give to a student who says, I just really want to work with Dr. Keller on something? Yeah, I mean, normally when the students come, I team them up with older students. They are normally on a project with a proposal. They get a copy of the proposals. And, and then uh, I'm not a micromanager, so I always have an open door policy. And I see how, and sometimes they struggle, but they have to struggle. They also have to realize when they need help and to come out and get help. And some excel wonderfully creating new ideas and, and you can really see it in their eyes when they get something going, right? Once they do this one first step and then they can see the road ahead of them. And, and this is something that is very nice to see. You know, not every person likes this undefined, more undefined environment. Some people like clear roadmaps and they do great and they're valuable people in this endeavor. Other people don't like to be micromanaged and want to have open space, you know. And ultimately, it's important while you're doing your PhD to find out what you really want that makes you happy and makes you successful. Is that where you're, uh, in that sense, you're trying to 
encourage and inspire these students, where does the leadership fall in that? Like how, how would you want to become right. or come across in that Yeah, sense? because most students that I hire never had any problems in school. They were really good, mm -hmm. right? They had these really outstanding grades. Some of them pretty much cruised through school, right? Then they come to the PhD and that's where they hit the first time, the first time their limitation. Yeah. yeah. And you know how, and I always tell them, if you haven't had any problems uh, during your PhD, you haven't earned your PhD. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I actually think it is very important that you hit your limit, that you hit your frustration level and you learn how to manage the frustration because if you don't do it during your PhD where you also get help and so on, you don't get to know what, what your strengths and weaknesses are and you need to know so that you can excel afterwards in the right place. How does knowing your weakness help you excel? I mean, some people just would like to be told to this, to this, to this. And they feel extremely uncomfortable with this unstructured environment. And other people hate this. And so the people who like these uh, this very clear guidelines, I would not recommend personally to go into research. But they can be extremely good as experts in, in a bigger push forward in a technology in a company where it really goes, you know, we need to solve this problem and then this problem and then we go forward. So the right person at the right place is a success. You made a statement in the American Physical Society that it is the responsibility of scientists like you to educate the public. Yes. And therefore that increases trust. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, when you look at it, um, in the old days, uh, companies could afford to do pretty fundamental research. I mean, look at Bell Labs, right? So this was, of course, possible because they earned so much money on the monopoly of telephone, right? They could just write telephone bills, right? They had so much money. And nowadays, most companies don't really have that uh, that kind of an income, and their their turnaround in the product in R and D is a higher pace, and so they cannot really support this exploratory research, uh, which can really lead to a total paradigm change. And so, actually, the responsibility is now uh, with the universities and with national labs. And so we, we need to take a fraction of our funds that we have of all the richer countries to do this exploratory research and share it with the world because that's what we're doing. And that increases the innovation potential on a, a pre-competitive level. And you know, I mean, you never know what happens next and it can change and turn over a whole industry. Where, where do you think like, that the best outcome of all of it. I think, you know, what is really important is that we keep the knowledge um, horizon in public hands because then we know what comes, you know, you can also turn it around, you know, suddenly if there is a technology that, you know, can be dangerous even for us and it's in private hands and we don't even know that this is coming, that can cause some problems. So I really think it is important that we as a world community keep the knowledge for horizon up in public publications. And you um, 
speaking of new technology, we're working with lasers to find a second Earth with some new company that you're working with? Uh, that's actually is more a long term. I mean, this goes back to all this optical clock and frequency comm metrology. And this is, of course, one application, the Astrocom, right? Which, I mean, it's not my idea, but of course, it's a nice application where you measure the Doppler shift of a sun. Uh, when a planet goes around a sun, you know, it's the sun doesn't stay still. Actually, the planet, it's a two-body problem. So the, the sun is also moving a little bit. And because the sun is moving, it, uh, it gives a frequency shift. And this frequency shift is a very small shift when the planet is small. That could be measured with such a frequency comb. And so this is just, you know, one of the many potential applications that came out of this uh, frequency comm stabilization, which I think is very fascinating, right? Are you putting any sort of research material, just like your time, you're going to like pursue that? I mean, not me personally, not, because I mean, if somebody would give me money with a certain specification, work on uh, Astrocom with this and this specification, I would be happy to do it. But so far, nobody has approached me to. And so I pick some other parameter space uh, for other applications. And, uh, you know, the Astrocom has for sure some application, but maybe if we find a more volume application, then it's probably more profitable for a company. Now, all of your technology that you've researched it inspires so many different avenues that anyone could go out and do that sort of research, yeah. branching off from what you've inspired yeah. with all your work. What would you say you're inspired by? If you could say, outside of what you've already worked on, what are you looking forward to? Huh, that's a good question. I mean, I'm... As I say, I'm an explorer and, you know, by now I have a whole bunch of things which I really would like to do before I actually have to retire, to be honest, you know, <laughs> you know, because I, at, you know, at ETH and in Europe, we have mandatory retirement at 65. So this means for me in four and a half years, the fun is over. And so I still have some personal goals, what I would like to achieve, you know, maybe we stumble on something new, but then other people will most likely pick it up. And it's going to be very sad to stop. On the other side, I have to say it's probably also a good system because if we all keep going and we have new professors coming in, we will not have enough resources anymore for everybody's space and funds to continue. And, and so at one point you have to let go to make space for the next generation. That's got to be hard for you. Yeah, but you know, I think there is other things. Who knows? Do you have any ideas, speaking of the future, of what you're going to do after? Yeah, I have a couple of ideas I'm playing around with. Mm -hmm. But at this point, I haven't really made up my yeah. final decision. And when you think about um, the future of your own technology, what, what could you predict? Some Crazy, what's like the, the biggest thing that you could hope for for a hundred years from now with all this new technology? So when you look at the CSIM, so now a CSIM is in every ultra-fast laser, industrial laser. So that's a pretty good uh, achievement, you know, while you're still alive. I mean, right now I'm hoping that this dual-com uh, mode locking could actually have some real application. 
And in contrast to the CSAM, the technology is a little bit more, you need more investment to ultimately do it. And so I would hope that this could actually go into something and I will actually see in the next five years if I even would consider starting a, a company on my own. I mean, so we will see a little bit how we, as we push forward the technology, if there is something coming up and then maybe I'll start a company. That's Dr. Ursula Keller. She's a physics professor at ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, good. Thanks a lot. Today's episode is brought to you by the Photonics Media Bookstore. Visit photonics.com store for books about photonics technology, posters, apparel, and more. Use the coupon code PODCAST for a 20% discount off your first purchase. Hi, this is Sue Petrie. This is my editorial comment from the February issue of Photonic Spectra. What if? Each day I drive about 40 miles east across Route 20 from Albany, New York to Pittsfield, Massachusetts to get to work. It's an hour through mostly rural countryside, and the commute gives me time to transition. It begins in the terrestrial world of forests and pavement and 18-wheelers and snow tires and deer, and ends at my desk, where I then begin navigating the world of photonics. It's a transmogrification, passing through a literal and figurative tunnel into another reality. Lately, as I drive the tunnel, I've noticed it's littered with roadkill. Literally. As the Australian wildfires rage, I've heard people comment, we can figure out a way to the moon, but we can't figure out a way to prevent fires. I apply the same logic to cars, trucks, and wildlife. Why can we send an imaging probe most of the way to the sun, but we can't figure out how to stop flattening fox and deer? Well, a few reasons. One, priorities. Two, outdated laws. Three, staffing. And four, desensitization. What to do? Maybe one answer lies in the Industry Insight column on quantum technology, written by Sujatha Ramanujan and Mark Tolbert on page 48. In the column, they point out that quantum computing isn't just about speed. More importantly, it's about learning to think differently. The example they offered inspired me to try a quantum thought experiment. I'm not sure I have it completely right, but here goes. What if there was a kind of quantum command and control center dedicated to solving the big problems of the classical world? It would have a publicly available quantum solutions database. To use it, one could enter a classical world problem, for example, roadkill, and the computer would respond with photonics and quantum technology-based solutions. It would instantly map the process, list the necessary technologies like LIDAR, IR sensing, thermal imaging, list the resources, humans, robots, agencies, whatever, required to create or work with the technologies, and target the friction points, like zoning laws, needed to be overcome or changed. Maybe it could toss in an estimated timeline and cost analysis, too. If this kind of multi-pronged problem-solving is what quantum computing is about, then what if countries had databases of national priorities? What if there were legible maps for progress instead of ignorance or failed 11th-hour rescue attempts? What if there was action instead of desensitization? Maybe we'd be quicker and more adept at harnessing fantastic emerging technologies, culturally proactive instead of reactive. Maybe we could head off destruction that we now shrug off as tragic but inevitable. 
while the tunnel that connects classical and quantum isn't entirely built or understood yet, photonic spectra continues to curate a conversation between the two, between invisible and visible, theory and application. This month, there are newly proposed Majorana-like photons on page 28 and plasmonic modulators on page 36. Straddling the visible and invisible, there are articles on IR sensors, page 32, and NIR spectroscopy on 56. A three-questions interview considers LIDAR and insect monitoring on page 54. An article on flow visualization in AI follows, and laser cleaning for industrial applications will stop you in your tracks with its classical world solutions. As always, warmly, Sue Petrie. How far back can we go to understand the subtlety of evolution and perceive the imperceptible changes that led to the development of what we now understand as the human brain? Give credit to the cuttlefish and its gill-bearing ancestors. Early animal cells have the potential to communicate with each other using electrical pulses and chemical signals, which soon evolved into specialized cells designed to carry messages, known as neurons. The first neurons were probably connected in a diffuse network across the body. This kind of structure, known as a nerve net, can still be seen in the bodies of jellyfish and sea anemones. In other animals, a central nervous system began to appear, allowing information to be processed rather than relayed, and animals to move and respond to the environment. The most specialized groups of neurons developed near the mouth and primitive eyes, and possibly initially in a worm-like creature known as an herbilitarian. These brains were primitive, often thought to be similar to the weird fish-like filter-feeding creatures called the lancelet. UC San Diego marine biologist Linda Holland described the brains in this marvelous way, quote, They are to vertebrates what a small country church is to Notre Dame Cathedral. The basic architecture is there, though they lack a lot of the complexity. The lancelet brain is pretty simple. The back half controls swimming movements, while the front half guides their vision. But something shifted about 500 million years ago, when one herbilitarian reproduced, duplicating its genome twice. This sparked an evolutionary chain of complex brains when spare genes were formed and developed in new directions. As early fish dodged predators and sought food, core structures in their brains evolved. The optic tectum involved in tracking moving objects with the eyes. The amygdala, which helps us respond to stressful situations. Parts of the limbic system, which gives us feelings of reward and helps us form memories and the basal ganglia, which controls patterns of movement. And that's really where our story begins. Technically 500 million years ago, but also right now. A group of scientists out at the University of Minnesota decided there was still more to learn about ourselves and our brains by studying our invertebrate cousins, and they equipped a group of 11 cuttlefish with specialized 3D glasses to watch movies in an underwater theater built just for them. This wasn't some weird fish gift for the cuttlefish to enjoy a nice viewing experience. The science friends wanted to investigate how cuttlefish determine striking distance from moving prey. Ultimately, the answer is that fish use something called stereopsis to perceive depth when hunting a moving target. Stereopsis is basically science speak for depth perception, which is possible through the process of both eyes working together. And this is what the science friends learned. Cuttlefish catch their prey by deploying their tentacles. But to be successful, they have to break out their adding machine, do a few calculations to determine the correct distance from their target. 
So if they're too close, the prey might get spooked and leave, and if they're too far, their tentacles won't reach. To test how the cuttlefish brain computes distance to an object, the team trained them to wear 3D glasses and then strike at moving images of two shrimp. Or, sort of trained, the glasses were attached with Velcro. Each shrimp was given a different color and displayed on a computer screen at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. The team was then able to determine what the fish perceived based on the shrimp's position in the tank relative to the screen. The shrimp images were offset so it was easier to tell if the cuttlefish were actually comparing the images with both eyes and as predicted, the cuttlefish missed. Like, every time. But like, imagine being a cuttlefish and watching a 3D movie for the first time. Had to be hard. Trevor Wardill, who worked on the project, explained that with two eyes, the cuttlefish were able to process faster and position themselves better. The researchers also found that the mechanism that underpins cuttlefish stereopsis is likely different from that of humans. While cuttlefish have similar eyes to humans, their brains branched off in the evolutionary process and developed significantly different. Cuttlefish brains aren't segmented like the brains of humans, with dedicated sections such as the occipital lobe. It was once thought that complex brain computations such as stereopsis were exclusive to higher order vertebrates, but studies such as this are leading scientists to reconsider the capabilities of invertebrate brains. The researchers say their next step is to dissect the brain circuits, and we are eagerly looking forward to the sequel to this story, Frankenfish. That'll do it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our guest, Ursula Keller. Our engineers are Alan Shepard and Brian Healy. Our featured artist is Kid Animal out of Los Angeles. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite music app. Thank you most of all to you, our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a story or you just want to reach out, you can email us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Subscribe wherever you may be listening and never miss a new episode. You can also subscribe to this podcast on our website, photonics.com slash podcast, where you will find episode notes, links to complete stories you heard, and some interesting side stories that didn't make it in. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. You've been listening to a Photonics Media production.